greetings and welcome to the Stamper Cinema. Uh, I am your host, Andrew Stamper. Thank you for tuning in to our very, very first ever podcast. So uh, thank you for listening and uh, we're going to see how this goes. Uh, the idea of what one of the things that we're going to be doing is each week I'll have a different guest and we'll see what interests them, you know, whether it's their favorite movie, movie they hate, or just some movie that's keeping them up. So uh, without further ado, I want to introduce tonight's first guest, Mr. Cooper Cherry, host of Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour. So greetings, Cooper. How's it going, man? It's going great. Um Happy to be here. Happy to swap out places and, and be a guest for once. If you could, uh, I'm really interested to hear about, you know, uh, for those of us that haven't heard your podcast, I, I would really love to hear uh, you talk a, a little bit about it for us before we kind of like kickstart talking about our movie today. Sure. So Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour is the current name of the podcast. And although I think primarily lately I've been focusing a ton on different strains of uh primarily theory uh, and philosophy. So I do pretty deep dives into, uh, I'm a big fan of post-structuralism. And so I delve a lot pretty in-depth into those topics. And I'll always have a guest of of some note, whether it be, I mean, you know, Andrew's been on the podcast, uh, but I've had, you know, academics, I've had um, musicians, I've had filmmakers, I've had scientists. I've had a pretty wide array of people. There's no real set um, format or topic, really. It's more so art, culture, theory, politics, um, you know, music, anything that kind of falls into that realm. Or if there's somebody that's interesting that I think I can have a cool conversation with, then uh, then I'll do so. But I I think probably the the majority of the content is is geared towards politics, whether it be left leftism in general or some specific subset of that. So if you like theory, I, would, I talk a lot of theory, but I also do movies as well. I'll frequently do a review. Andrew and I did a series of our favorite top five films that's really good, and that's a little bit less theory heavy. Uh, but the discussions are really good, and I don't know, it's fun. It's a lot of fun to talk with people and, and uh, you know hope that other people enjoy that. So what piqued your interest? What was it that you decided, you know what, I want to pursue this. So as, as kind of a frustrated filmmaker for years and years, and um, I needed a project and it's difficult. I think it's a lot more challenging to do even a, you know, a small film project. You need a handful, you know, three, four or five people to do anything interesting and, that was proving difficult and I wasn't getting any films made. So I eventually had stumbled into podcasts when I was doing customer service email support at one of my jobs. And that kind of took up some of the day, uh, listening to those. And then I was like, you know, I could, I could fucking do this. <laughs> and so I, I had thought, you know, I, I knew four or five, six, seven people that I thought could lend some legitimacy to the project and that I could kind of build on from there. And so I started reaching out to them and um, they were saying yes. And I started producing the podcast and just have learned and learned and grown tremendously since, since then it's been about three years that I've been doing the podcast. All right. So three years, I mean, that, that's, that's a pretty good extensive, uh, you know, background at this point. So for somebody that is now only just getting into it, you have any advice for me? Hmm. I'm trying to think. Um, I mean, I think just jumping in and doing it and not being afraid to do that. You're not that you're making a mistake or you're, you know, there's no reason that not to, it's like, don't let audience size, discourage you either because I don't think that's what it's about. That's not what it's about for me. It's a project, frankly, that gives me a reason to live (laughs) as kind of like as, as intense as that sounds, but it really does it. I'm constantly working on reading for the podcast or, you know, studying or cramming for it or doing something, editing or like making, um, thumbnails for the episodes that and putting that's out some like, like killer like twitter content as oh, well yeah. oh if you want to talk posting i mean i have a shit posting account that is it's quite quite something to to be 
Yeah, we'll have we'll have to have you plug your Twitter account before this is all said and done. Yeah, so absolutely. Cooper's a lot of fun to follow on Twitter. I'll, I'll you know have to <laughs> definitely have to say that. It's like triple triple X rated content. No visuals usually, but <laughs> it's all done. It's all done very tongue in cheek, and it's meant to be funny and and gross and disgusting. But that's that's kind of the point. It's like uh, like I'm being disgusting or childish or making kind of shitty posts on purpose. So there's like a there's a methodolo- methodology behind it. I think now's as good of a time as any to go ahead and kind of move on to why you're here today. Tell us about the movie that that you wanted to discuss this week, and uh, you know we're going to go from there. So I chose Cable Guy, one of the. Uh, and it's funny watching the movie. I didn't realize how many bits that I still do from this movie. All these years later, what it's like. It's been out for 24 years, maybe. I think 1996. Came out- uh, so, yeah, I mean, we're, I mean, we're next year will be 25 years, right? Yeah, um, which is crazy to think. Um, but so Jim Carrey was kind of exploding, I think, during the time that I was a kid, because um, I was born in 82. And so Jim Carrey was, of course, on a little sketch comedy show by the name of In Living Color. Huge fan of him from there. And then things like The Mask and Ace Ventura, When Nature Calls, etc. was a big, big fan. Like, Carrie was like the hilarious guy at the time. He was the king of comedy, so to speak, in the kind of early, to, in the early to mid 90s. Um, and so this movie I chose because, I mean, it's hilarious. And like I said, there's still bits that I'm doing from this movie. Also, because I, I've sort of thought about choosing Ace Ventura when nature calls, but I don't want to step on anybody's toes. So this was a good, this was a good kind of sidestep to that. <laughs> now, do you remember the very first time that you saw this movie? Yes. Yes, I do. I saw this movie at my aunt and uncle's house in, uh, in Muldoon, Texas. And I think I was in like eighth grade. Uh, let's see, because I think it came out in 96. So I would have been like 14 years old. So that would have had to have been like eighth grade for me. I would have been a freshman in like 96, 97. It's funny because I don't remember the first time I saw this movie, but I remember when it came out. And during that summer, I went and bought the soundtrack because I fell in love with like the, the, like the bands that were, that were appearing on that soundtrack. And I wore the hell out of the CD during that summer. I was away... Um, this is, I'm from Bermuda originally, and I would spend my summers in Bermuda, and then I'd fly back to the U.S. And my mom lived in, in Florida, so I'd kind of go back and forth. And when you lived in Bermuda, we didn't really have a lot of like first-run movies that would play or anything like that. It would be always on a delay. Like you, I had loved Jim Carrey, you know, uh, The Mask, Dumb and Dumber, Ace Ventura. Loved all of those movies. So I was really jazzed when The Cable Guy came out because it, it seemed a little bit different, a little like crazier even than anything else he had done at that point. I was really pumped up about it. But then when I came to the States, I mean, and this is also kind of like predates Rotten Tomatoes and kind of like predates the whole like internet boom of everything. I'll never forget like the first conversation I had with my friends were like, fuck the cable guy. Like this movie is terrible. It's, it's, it's dumb, blah, 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 blah. blah. And I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't believe it for the life of me. And so I don't remember when I saw it. I remember kind of like avoiding it, but I do know that I've never not loved the movie, you know? So from like, I, I don't know when I saw it uh, for the first time, but I know that every time that I've ever seen it, I've seen this movie dozens of times. I love it. And I'm fascinated because upon like doing digging, this movie is as mixed as they come. I mean, it's like smack dab, like on Rotten Tomatoes at like 50%, right? Or 52%. IMDB has like a 6.1, you know, like rating on it. Like, and then like the audience reviews on Rotten Tomatoes still give it like a 51%. So people are really, really Really? polarized (laughs) on this film. And I'm fascinated by that. Yeah. It's just, it's a really, really interesting thing. I will say that I did not like the movie at first. Uh, the, under on the first viewing, I did not. Get, I didn't get it, and I think it was just everything that Jim Carrey had done up to that point was more overtly humorous and less less kind of like adult. This was more, even though like it's not you know it's not a super complex movie. It was just like a total. It was a change in direction, I think, in terms of what Carrey had been doing. So. 
he cut there was the expectations went went one way and the movie did another way and and i think that's what all the division is is primarily geared toward because like looking back this movie's got like five or six fucking hilarious all the sequences are fucking hilarious they're outstanding the uh the cast of character like the cast is insane it's the first time i ever came across jack black and uh i shit i want to say probably owen wilson as well um just off the top of my head so from what one of the things i had read is that they had heard uh, or they had seen like an early like an early tape of bottle rocket and they fell okay. in love with owen wilson gotcha and because i mean yeah, so that was the only thing that Owen Wilson had done prior to this film. Yeah, uh, Anaconda and Armageddon. Behind the lines. And, yeah, just and it's so funny when you think of like uh, Owen Wilson's personality and some of the uh, some of the films that he had. You know, he he seems to mesh really well in like the Wes Anderson kind of universe. But yeah, again, he was like in behind enemy lines and Armageddon and Anaconda and a couple other things, but. Dude, his, his one scene where he gets his ass absolutely handed to him in the bathroom oh, he's is so great. one of the funniest yeah. things ever. Yeah. So fucking great. He's such a he's so good at being like he looks the part too. He's got on like the turtleneck and the sweater, and he's just ex- exceedingly demanding in that scene at the at the restaurant. Yeah. And it starts with him being like an asshole to Leslie Mann's character because he's out on a date with her. And I can't remember if it was like chicken or something that wasn't, he was given like the, the, like the waitender, uh, like the waiter or bartender or uh, whoever it was like a hard time about like, where the hell's the meal? You know, like where is, and then he's like, you know, enough about that. Tell me about what's going on. I want to hear about you. And then she starts to talk and he's like, all right, I'm going to go to the head. I'll, I'll hear about this in a second. But he, he just steals and, and this is his, again, he had done Bottle Rocket, but at that point, nobody had really even seen Bottle Rocket, so. Oh, yeah, I, it wasn't until, like, shit, 10 or 4, 10 to 15 years later that I even heard about Bottle Rocket. Yeah, and again, you know, uh, Owen Wilson is only in the movie for all of five minutes, but, yeah, he's brilliant. But, of course, this is very, very much a Jim Carrey vehicle. I mean, he he is this film. We had talked a little bit about some of the other films that he had done leading into it, but it was a result of the success that those movies had that he became the very first $20 million actor, which was awesome uh, on one hand, but two – pissed everybody off you know so that one they they kind of feared what it would do kind of within the market like other like rival studios uh kind of already like painted this movie into like a box of like oh you know like uh as far as what they're paying jim carrey for this role apparently there was a little bit of a bidding war between like uh columbia and when they they finally got the rights to it and originally chris farley was attached to play this role uh, but he had to back out due to like a con like a like he had another film going on i can't remember what movie he was shooting at that time but then they brought in jim carrey and you know he had just wrapped all these other films that were just mad box office successes i mean it 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 seems kind of like crazy to even like process but like he had this run where like five straight films leading into this were all over like 100 million like ace ventura 2 like and this is crazy to me because of the fact that one there really isn't much going on in the movie in terms of the, the big picture, I'm using my hands here, but that movie like grossed over $200 million of, like in really? the box office, Holy like shit. worldwide, mind you, worldwide. It's still $200 million for Ace Ventura 2 when yeah. it's your call. But that's like $90 too, so that's that's pretty it's incredible. Huge. Yeah, yeah. And I just went ahead and pulled up like a couple other things, and I'm going to kind of like segue into why this is relevant. So the original Ace Ventura was $107 million worldwide. And then The Mask... You know, cool $351 million worldwide. Holy Dumb shit. Dumb and Dumber, $247 million. Ace Ventura, 212 And Batman Forever, which he had also been in, $336 million. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, oh, man, I forgot about that. A really, really tasty <laughs> run of film. So he he was box office gold. A bankable star, so, I mean, for sure. Yeah, very, very bankable. So he, you know, he got that $20 million. Then this the the reviews came out and Columbia didn't really package this movie in probably the right way because nobody really knew what to make of this movie. I mean, let's let's kind of like talk a little bit about about what like what type of box does this movie fit into? I mean, is it a traditional like comedy? Is it a satire? 
Like, I mean, there's some like rom-com, there's some weird like homoerotic uh, things going on in the movie. Uh, is it, is it like a play on society? I mean, that's something that Ben Stiller films have often, you know, kind of, uh, you know, done in the past. So this movie in the box office uh, grossed over a hundred million dollars, but it was deemed a massive failure in terms of based on, you know, the uh, successes that some of uh, Jim Carrey's previous films had done. Now, granted the movie only costs about 45, 46, $47 million to make. And 20 of that, you know, went to Jim right into Jim Carrey's pocket. The movie grossed over a hundred million dollars worldwide and was like perceived to be a failure. Like people have like called it like Jim Carrey's Ishtar. I'm, I'm interested in it because again, movie's brilliant it's awesome yeah but in terms of like packaging how do you how do you make sense or how do you explain this film i mean it's not it's just looking it's weird i think just the timing and the expectations attached to jim carrey's previous movies are what created this bizarre reaction to the film because it's it's not particularly a gross out movie um like you like i think that once you had later on in the decade something like American Pie, right? Like that kind of was a, a shift mm-hmm. in terms of, of movies like sort of like in the same ballpark. But yeah, I mean it's it's unbelievable because you know you've got Apatow actually produced the film. Mm-hmm. And it's even I think a little bit more mm, grounded, even than like the later kind of Apatow movies that came later like 40 year old virgin and and so like it's not even on that same gross and like bodily humor element i'm pretty sure nobody nobody smokes pot in this film which (laughs) might be like the the first and last time uh like apatow was attached to something where it wasn't about somebody getting high at some point i mean looking back it's like a it's a it's a straight up comedy movie i it's i don't see anything unusual about the about it content wise i mean it feels like a pretty i mean i i wouldn't call it this is kind of unfair to say but like i can't think of a better term than mundane as far as the the comedy goes it's not there's mm-hmm. not a lot of cuss words you know it's not like a, vul, a right. super vulgar or bloody or sexually um explicit movie or anything like that it's pr- content wise it's pretty middle of the road there's nothing incredibly right. edgy about the movie really ultimately it's it's pretty safe mm-hmm. in terms of its content so it's it's just a matter of of timing to be honest which is insane like this just proves that timing has such an importance when it comes to anything in life because this movie is fucking hilarious it's it's really it's a tight 95 minute i mean movie that is i I can't think of a single flaw in this movie, to be honest. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think I would probably tend to agree. I do wonder about the chemistry between Matthew Broderick and Jim Carrey, like on camera. Sometimes I'm, uh, I'm not, yeah. I, I, I don't know. It almost at sometimes feel like they're in two different films. Yeah. Right. That, I mean, that, I feel like I'm really trying to dig. That's, yeah. Something. That's kind of, that's kind of reaching. I see, like, I see why you would say that for sure, because Broderick is so like dry, but it's, that's the perfect foil to the shenanigans of Jim Carrey. Like you needed a straight man to do it, but like, I don't know. Uh, Maybe, yeah, maybe someone with the, but I don't know if the movie works as well. If Broderick has, doesn't have that kind of weird, it's almost a bit of um, stuff. kind of like a kind wuss attitude. Like a, you know, yeah, yeah. yeah. But again, like I said, I, I feel like I'm really digging, you know, to try to like yeah. to have something uh, against it. But again, it, it's a movie that I have always, always thoroughly enjoyed from the first moment that I saw it, whenever it was. Um, <laughs> but I, 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 yeah, I go back to remembering when the movie came out and how people, yeah, there are people that, you know, just kind of yeah. pissed off about it. But right. when we think about it, you know, it, it, it's really, really sharp. And in so many ways, it's so like ahead of its time and, you know, in, in other ways, I mean, we'll, Very I want to, I want to talk a little bit about that satellite scene uh, that, that happens at the, you know, uh, later on in the film. Uh, but like how prophetic, you know, uh, was all that, you know, in terms of this is before, 
you know, like the, the dot-com boom and everything and yeah. shit, you know, it, it preceded the iPod, you know, or iPhone, you know, by a good decade. And what, you know, how he's talking about being able to, you know, like, uh, you know, visit the Louvre on one channel and, you know, uh, play Mortal Kombat with a friend in Vietnam. Yeah. 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 And the information super high. I had not ever used the internet when this movie came out. I mean, the internet, it, it obviously existed, but it, this, this was like right before things started to actually like, actually, I mean, shit, Matthew Broderick was playing on the internet and war games in 1984. Right. But, uh, but what we know of as the internet, this movie preceded that. And so it's, it's a really cool scene, but the, the whole character that Jim Carrey has in this film, one, he's brilliant. And two, my, my favorite thing is you have a character that essentially was raised by television. And for somebody, no disrespect to my, uh, to my family, because I, I think I was raised pretty well, but I too also was kind of like put in front of a, a, a television and many people of our generation were. Yes. This movie kind of shows where we're being you know raised by a television. You can see it go to the extreme in one direction, like the, the line, um, and I, I had, I had to have it because it's so good where he says, you were never there for me, mother. You expected Mike and Carol Brady to raise me. I'm the bastard son of Claire Huxtable. I am a lost <laughs> Cunningham. I learned the facts of life from watching, from watching the facts, the facts of, life. of life. So, I mean, just really, really great stuff. It reminded me, I don't, I, I, I swear, I think I'm the, the only person in the world that ever watched this show, but it was this great show that was on HBO from like 1990 to 1995. It was called Dream On. In that show, it, it, it kind of focuses on like this divorced guy trying to have a single life and also like a teenage son. But like the opening credits, it's a mom putting a kid right in front of the TV and you kind of like, it's kind of montage as you watch this kid kind of get older, but raised by by television. And then as we pick up on the show as an adult, it kind of like will intercut like clips from like classic TV shows. And it's usually kind of like a little like sexual innuendo. Cause it was a very like sex focused TV show, but it would intercut like little clips from classic television into what he was dealing with, like on his regular basis and kind of reminded me of that. But again, just this whole notion of, of a generation of people being raised by television is something that this, uh, that this movie really taps into. And I think it's just, I think it's brilliant. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Um, it's same thing. I think in terms of being sort of raised by a TV in, in many regards and like watching Nick at night. And of course, like I lived in the country, so we only had the f three or four stations that you could get over an antenna. So it was like Fox, NBC, ABC, <laughs> um, you know, PBS, CBS, there was, you know, all the kind of four basic networks in PBS. And so I gained a lot of exposure to kind of these older shows that would mm -hmm. be on, you know, in syndication at the time. But also, yeah, I very much so raised by TV and very much, I think, aligned with this Chip character in the sense that his personality is so dominated by by these popular cultural references and that's sort of being all there is to him to some degree. Yeah. Which I can highly, highly relate to is like that, um, that sort of phenomenon I think is very common for, you know, people of our kind of age cohort and then maybe even forward. I don't know. Kids now that are raised with the internet from day one, I, that's a whole different ball game, but for that kind of weird generation that are, you know, 1980 onward to probably like mm -hmm. 1990. Um, I think there's a lot of commonality here. It, it's funny how like technology and the way that kids are being raised and now, especially, you know, uh, kind of being in a, a pandemic atmosphere, what does that mean for this new generation that are getting so much more exposure to, um, you know, to weather television, whether, you know, uh, playing, watching video content on an iPad or iPhone or, you know, yeah. whatever, you know, Android, whatever it is that they're using. The kids love the YouTubes these days, um, which is like, a, I think a dr the drastic difference is kind of the different, like the not the proliferation of non-professional content um, mm -hmm. or like that plus streaming culture as well, because, you know, like I said, at the time this movie came out, I mean, I had never used the internet. We had like four channels. You had to get, you know, a satellite dish to have 
even basic cable where I lived. So for the longest time, it wasn't until like uh, right around the time this movie started coming out that I even had access to cable TV consistently. When I when I lived in Bermuda, like you, we only had just uh, we had three. We had three channels. We and one of them really didn't even come in very good, you know. So we had like CBS, yeah. ABC, and and NBC was the third one. So my dad, he he had a buddy that had a video store, so he would come home like every other day with like a couple couple VHSs or whatever, you know, because he yeah. At that point, he was a single father and, you know, we, we visit the island and, uh, you know, he had to work. So it's like, all right, you know, I'll, I'll see you at five o'clock here, you know, go watch the Terminator. You know, I'm, I'm fucking six, <laughs> uh, watching the Terminator or whatever. Oh yeah. I saw a lot of very rated R movies at, at a very young age before yeah. kindergarten. So when you talk about this movie, it's hard to not talk about like some like specific, like sequences in the film, whether you're looking at um, shit now, of course I, I draw a complete blank, but the, the medieval time scene or oh God, the medieval times, yes. The, the basketball scene or uh, they're all, they're all great. Every little vignette. Um, mm-hmm. So the basketball scene, phenomenal, the restaurant scene, phenomenal. The, <laughs> what else? The uh, yeah. Medieval times, um, the, the family game night, yeah. As well. I'm trying to think of like they're all they're all great. Uh the the karaoke jam. Mm-hmm. These are all great fucking scenes. And it's funny that Lou Holtz's son wrote this. This is Lou Holtz Jr.'s only credit in his life is fucking the cable. What what the hell is happening? What kind of weird world do we live in where Lou Holtz's son writes this movie? And that's the only movie, like I guess what? It's such a great written movie, too. <laughs> what the fuck? Yeah, and because uh, I believe he he was like a lawyer, uh, right? So, and I guess he saw a cable guy in his hallway or something, and it just kind of, you know, gave him gave him an idea and wrote it, and and then Jim Carrey got a hold of it, and Judd Apatow, you know, got got a hold of it, and kind of. Uh, twisted it up a little bit, but shit, if you're going to have one credit, uh, you know, on yeah. IMDb cable guy, ain't a bad one to have. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess if you're not Lou Holtz, the son though, you like, does this movie even get fucking daylight? Like he ha- Lou Holtz had the name to get this script to the right people too, you know? Right. Which is kind of ag- ag- irritating <laughs> that he doesn't have a, like the movie is so fantastically written. Um, that you know it's it's frustrating that he didn't get more work after that mm-hmm. immediately but it's also frustrating in the sense that like at the time could he have gotten this screenplay to this brilliant movie even produced without this connection so you know it's kind of like this weird um contradiction i don't know yeah i mean i guess it's one of those things it, you know it, it, it's it's who you know right yeah and uh I'm thankful <laughs> uh, I, the world is a better place because of this movie. We'll, we'll you know, I'll, we'll put it that way. Uh, do you have a a favorite sequence that uh, within the film, or are they all they all pretty much tied for first? Hmm. I would probably have to go with the medieval times. Okay, I think would probably be my favorite overall because you have like one of my so Andy Dick cameos as i'm not even sure what he would be considered but he's like this the guy that orates at medieval times presumably as some like playing some type of uh monarch or something like that Mm -hmm. (laughs) and he's he's fucking hilarious in that role uh janine garofalo shows up janine garofalo kills it with the with the whole pepsi thing she's like dude i got a lot of tables man yeah (laughs) Another hilarious thing is that she has this really shitty anarchy symbol tattooed yep. on her, like col- on her collarbone or something like that as well. I saw that. I was wondering if you would, I, I had a feeling you would probably point that out, you know, <laughs> that, that's right up your, yeah, that's right up your alley. Uh, yeah. I mean, this movie kind of like tackles like three, three, like 90 shows right off the bat. Right. Because you had, 
Janine Garofalo and Andy Dick, and obviously Ben Stiller's in the film and um, Bob Odenkirk's in it. So you, you basically cross off the Ben Stiller show right there. And then you also had David Cross in the movie, Bob Odenkirk, David Cross, they did Mr. Show. Then you had Jack Black and you almost would have tenacious but you need uh, Kyle. And of course, Kyle shows up at the very end of the movie as he grabs the remote. So you have tenacious oh, D. Yeah. yeah. Fuck. So <laughs> go ahead and like kill three, like 90 shows right there. Yeah. That was, that was him that picks up the book at the end of the movie. Yeah. Ha. Huh. I didn't even recognize him. Even watching it last. I like literally watched it last night again. <laughs> and I didn't pick up that. That's who that was. Kyle gas. Oh, but what you're also missing though, is uh, George Seagal was in uh what was that fucking show with david spade news just was it news yeah just, just shoot, shoot me. me just yeah. shoot me yeah yeah so you got that someone else was in just shoot me um i feel like someone else in the movie maybe it was in just shoot me or am i uh the i don't know if it's david bow or david bowie but it's b-o-b-o-w-e he was the guy in the, the helicopter at the very, very end. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I recognize that guy, too. Yeah, so I was trying to, like, where the hell do I know that guy from? Well, he was Weird Al Yankovic's, like, best friend in UHF, which is another movie that is all about, like, throwing, you know, movie reference after movie reference. So it was kind of cool that he was in this film, which how many movie and television references does Jim Carrey throw out in this film, right? I mean, there's so many little, yeah, so little many clips. Of, yeah. So there are a couple little little parallels right there as well. But because I don't even know if David Bow or David Bowie, whatever his actual pronunciation of his last name is. I don't know what else that guy was in other than UHF in, in this film. Yeah, he's had a couple of bit parts in other movies. I recognize him from stuff that I, you know, I'd have to look at his IMDb page, but he's definitely kind of filled that same little like you know, a couple of lines of dialogue here and there, several movies. So it does look like uh, David Cross just had had been on uh, Just Shoot Me like three episodes, but okay. George Seagal is the main who played the father in the film, if you're wondering. And uh, George Seagal was also like the dad in what's the Kirstie Alley? Um, uh, look who's talking. Look who's talking. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he also plays Ben Stiller's father in a movie that came out like right around the same time, maybe maybe a year later, maybe a year before. I can't remember. It was called Flirting with Disaster. And I don't know if you ever saw that, but it is one of the funniest films I've ever seen. And it's a movie where Ben Stiller plays an adopted like an adopted son, and he goes on a quest to find out who his real parents are. And uh, George Siegel plays his adopted father and he's married to Mary Tyler Moore. So Mary Tyler Moore and uh, George Siegel is his adopted parents. And he goes on a quest to find out who his real parents are, who turn out to be Alan Alda and uh, uh, Lily Tomlin. Lily, yeah. So crazy, crazy cast in that film as well. Holy shit. David O. Russell wrote that? Wow. Yeah. 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 David O. Russell. Yeah. It, if you have huh. not seen it and a lot of people haven't. I highly encourage you to watch it. It is one of the funniest films I've ever seen. So good. Yeah. Damn. This cast is amazing, too. You've got Lily Tomlin, Richard Jenkins, J- Josh Brolin, Seagal, Mary Tyler Moore, Taylor Honey, Patricia Arquette, and Stiller. Huh. I don't think I've ever seen this movie. Yeah, you got it. Crazy. Yeah. And it came out huh. around around the same time, maybe a year later maybe a year before I can't remember, but it was around that 95 to 97 yeah, uh, time this frame. This looks like a hardcore mid nineties film <laughs> yeah. for sure. Yeah. But regarding the cable guy, every, it seemed like everybody was in this film. I mean, we kind of covered a lot of people, but shit. I mean, Eric Roberts. Yeah. Eric Roberts plays, uh, the sweet brothers. Yeah. The sweet brothers. Yeah. It's Stan, Stan and I forget the other Sam. Brother's name. Sam. Oh yeah. Stan and Sam sweet. So he plays them both in the movie within the movie, the television movie about this supposedly, I guess it's kind of based on the Menendez brothers yep. killings who yep. a little Menendez, a little OJ Simpson kind oh, of yeah. thing. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Cause he was a star that they were like kids. He was a child star or they were child stars for that movie or mm-hmm. for the TV show within the movie. 
But it, it, it's interesting because it, it was cool that they that they went ahead and had that whole Sam Sweet uh, trial thing going on because it was an, it's another thing that just kind of like captivated people and still people today get fascinated by like these trials and it was kind of like a really good touch if there was ever like a break in the action in the film you'd go ahead and get a little bit of a clip from uh, from this trial that was going on you know the people that would be obsessed with what was going on with this this fallen TV star that people were obsessed with. I love the shoe that like they had the, they even included the in MTV news uh, kind of bulletins that would run yeah, get, from time to time with Tabitha Soren. Yeah. Tabitha Soren was in, I can't remember if, uh, if Kurt Loder was in it too. I don't think he was, no. but I think they did just one MTV uh, bulletin. And that was with, uh, with Soren. Shit. I mean, that kind of shows like how, you know, the movie is a little dated in that respect because you, yeah. you had MTV at all. Right. Doing, well, I guess they still, they were still so playing music videos at this point. This was, Like the real world was still happening, but it wasn't at the point that it became later on with like Laguna Beach and all that sort of bullshit. Um, well, I've got a little, I've got a little pop quiz for you, but before we get there, did you have any, any other things that you wanted to kind of like talk about? I mean, I've, there's just, a, there's a ton. There's, um, I mean, I think first, first and foremost, you have to give Carrie credit as a, an absolute master of physical, com- physical comedy throughout this movie. And just looking back and watching the movie, I was like, this movie had to be fucking hilarious like shooting this movie can you imagine how much fucking fun they had on the set with like carrie just going bonkers and like these other comedians and stuff like stiller directing um you know you've got odin courage you've got garofalo you've got um and so many funny yeah david cross andy dick like so many fucking hilarious people involved in the production of this film that it I'm just looking at it and I'm just like laughing my ass off at the fucking atmosphere on the set. I don't know how you could, how do you control these people? How do you control Carrie? Or do you just like, you have to let the camera run on the guy because he's just fucking, he just, he just goes, he just runs with it fully. Like he's uninhibited, completely physically, facially, you know, all of it. He just fucking, rocks it so hard it's oh without a it's doubt really incredible now i read something and i'm probably butchering butchering uh the facts on this but evidently when they would shoot the film they would kind of do like two different like two different like uh takes on the thing where they would they would go a little bit darker or they'd go a little bit like funnier with the way that they they would shoot it and uh yeah i mean it, it's crazy that you know this movie they're there were some things that they had to delete because it went just a little, a little, a little too dark within the comedy. And I read this thing, Jim, uh, that Jim Carrey said that the more money they pay me, the more I want to rebel. And, uh, yeah. which, which I thought, you know, thought it was great that, you know, he, that, and dude, he, he was riding so high. And of course, Jim Carrey had, you know, been around, you know, he did in living color and he was in movies in the early eighties, but this was his, you know, like his pinnacle, right? You know, just when you when you go from Ace Ventura to The Mask to uh, Batman to this, I mean, just 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 had been crushing it, and now he now he's getting that that paycheck. You know, he you know he I think he got like half a mil for Ace Ventura, and now he's getting twenty million dollars, and he's like, fuck it, I'm gonna I'm gonna have fun with this, and I'm around all these other like great creative minds and Ben Stiller and. Apatow, everybody already kind of like saw that trajectory that he was going to go on and to do some other things. Obviously, you know, he had worked with the Ben Stiller show and uh, had done, you know, other writing things. And he did a lot of the rewrites for it. Didn't get like the, uh, the, the screenwriting, like a, like co-writing credit on it. But yeah, this just seemed like a, an unbelievable film to be a part of. And when you just see, so many of these people that before they were who they were, and then you have got, you've got Jim Carrey at the absolute top, just, just saying, fuck it. I'm going to go ahead and just make this movie. It makes me wonder, I'm like, is this his, you know, obviously, you know, I'm, I'm making a stretch here with the comparison, but is this his citizen Kane? Is this his, <laughs> his best, um, his best work? Hmm. 
it's it's definitely up there. Um, I think like you get to liar liar, and it sort of is becoming tired to some degree um, because it's very much modulated this same kind of character really right like it's a lot of physical humor um but i think this really hits the notes better than than liar liar even like i don't know that was liar liar was like has a more kind of cheesy sensibility or like vibe to it i think right than this movie did uh this movie's cool you know Mm -hmm. i think is the difference like it's a more it's a bit more adult though. I even, I don't even know if that's true because Liar Liar was fairly, you know, like there was Jennifer Tilly was in it. So there was like sexual undertones, even though there are sexual undertones here, there's no nudity or like anything shown whatsoever. Like this one was certainly more edgy. Liar Liar was, was a little, I mean, there, Liar Liar seemed a little bit more by the numbers, you know, yeah, um, for sure. where, where this Agreed. one did play, it played with a lot of things. And again, there are a lot of different yeah. little themes and, you know, we talked a little bit about like that satellite scene and uh, we've talked about like the Sam Sweet trial. And, uh, and then of course you just have like just pure gold physical comedy bits with the, the medieval times and uh, the basketball scene, which, Dude, come on. Um, hey, man, nice shot with the basketball scene. Just, it's oh, yeah. so Great good. song. Yep. Still love that song to this day. I I love this game. So that is one thing you probably won't ever hear me do. I, I can't do impressions. You know, the can't do it. I would love to. Steven, I'm open. <laughs> Give me the rock. Yep. Give me the rock. Yeah. Uh, and it, his voice was perfection in it and yeah i wish i could do that impression so i'll leave i'll leave the uh, the fun impressions for you i have i have a ton of impressions that i can do from this movie um like the the fight scene at medieval medieval times <laughs> <laughs> that's my andy dick but there's a there's a really i love the part where carrie so they're fighting in the pit and then he starts doing the um the famous star trek the famous, yes, the original Star Trek battle between, I think it's when Spock, like Spock and Kirk go back to planet Vulcan or something and they're forced to fight to the death. So that's the reference point mm-hmm. for the scene. And I love how Jim Carrey's doing the music. <laughs> <laughs> if we don't battle to the death, they will kill us both. Goodbye, Jim. Any other impressions for us? Um... One of my, f- I'm trying to let me look through my notes because there's a couple of bits that I like literally still still do. One of them's like, okay, so early on, I think it's Carrie's like knocking on his door when he's in the shower and he like get, he runs, like Matthew Broderick hurries up to get out of the shower and uh, catches the cable guy and he's like, well, look who decided to share. Because <laughs> he's got the list. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Cable guy. Cable guy. Cable guy. <laughs> and I think the best part of the whole like cable guy thing is he doesn't even work for the cable company. He like ripped off that truck. Yeah, it's getting fired. Yeah. He breaks the basketball, mm-hmm. um, the backboard, and he like falls to the ground and gets up. I love this game. <laughs> Such a like quotable film. I mean, there's just so many funny ones that I do like at the karaoke jam. Um, Raul, I forget. Raul was singing Don't Rock the Boat, I think. Don't Rock the yeah. Boat, baby. Yep. And like Carrie comes up and he's like, you had honey in your nice in your voice tonight, Raul. <laughs> so I use that. I use that. You had honey in your voice tonight. I still do that as a bit to people um, sometimes. Uh, but then his like whole, so he goes into the, what is it? The, the guess who song American woman is the pinnacle or like his performance in the karaoke jam scene. And I love his little preamble that he gives because he's well, like, wait, isn't it the, the old guy that does American, doesn't he do somebody? To oh love? yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Don't you want somebody to love? Yeah. Right. Yeah, right. yeah. Yeah. Who sings? Don't do you want somebody to love? Uh, Jefferson airplane. Jefferson airplane. Okay. Yeah. My bad. I fucked that up. No, no, uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> But the Again, I, I listen gives. to the soundtrack a lot, all right? 
the preamble that he gives. He's like uh, something about the Rolling Stones and their nightmare at Altamont. Mm-hmm. That that night, the, the Hell's Angels. Los Angeles chapter of the Hell's Hell's Angels had their way tonight. tonight it's, it's my turn. turn. And then, of course, he goes into the famous fucking karaoke scene. That's one of my other. There's another moment too, like whenever he gets into the fight in the bathroom with Owen Wilson and puts his mouth on the automatic hand dryer, and he's like, "Oh, from this is from this angle, you kind of look like Dizzy Gillespie." Yeah. So that is another like another moment. Like so, he puts that like right in his mouth and he's telling him like to more or less suck it. You know, like there are now. It's just one again. There there are a couple weird. Uh, not really weird, but there are a couple like homoerotic things that happen in that film. One, they have like uh, when they were in the car and Jim Carrey looks at him like longingly and there's like that weird long pause where he's smiling at him. And Matthew Prodrick's like, okay, bye. You had that. <laughs> like the back cracking scene where he's like holding him and he's like, he's like cracking his back for him. And then the next morning after the party, Jim Carrey is wearing matthew broderick's like hoodie yeah <laughs> um yeah and and kind of like the interaction as if they had themselves consummated some kind of like relationship as opposed to like he matthew broderick opposed supposedly sleeps with the um the prostitute right jim carrey's character says oh i i, I tried her out well, last week <laughs> and other not a drip. not a so so gross oh god it's so good I made scramby eggs. Scramby eggs is another <laughs> another bit that still holds up pretty well. I made scramby eggs. Why are you doing this, Stephen? Everything was going so well. So yeah, he does have this sort of uh, spurned lover yep. element to him. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, that kind of really gets ratcheted up whenever they do the the scene where Broderick is been arrested for stealing the karaoke equipment and he does the oh billy yeah midnight like, minute midnight unbutton, express yeah buttons his shirt yeah unbuttons his shirt presses his nipple against the the window oh billy i had i had never seen midnight express uh and then after this movie i'm like i have to i have to see what where the scene comes from and i don't know if you've ever seen that movie but that's a that's a that's a depressing flick I love uh, also in the karaoke jam, he, Jim Carrey goes up to Jack Block and he's like, look at, look at Steven. He's having a super time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. All right. Here it is. We're going to put you on the, uh, we're going to put you on the hot seat. I've got, I've got five questions to test your knowledge on, on this. Well, you know, kind of on this, it's just going to be kind of related to it. So here we go. Question. Number one. All right. We obviously know about that medieval times uh, shot that they had in the film. So that is a real location. In fact, there are. Is it in Dallas? It is not (laughs) in Dallas. It is in California, but uh, it's good to know there is a medieval times location in Dallas too. In fact, there are several medieval times locations in the U.S. How many are there? Are there eight? Are there 10? Or are there 12? Hmm. I would probably go with eight. You're close. Ten. There are ten. I mean, there might only be eight Damn. right now. I mean, we've got COVID, right? So, yeah. Right. Um, but uh, because I shit, I don't even think I don't even know if the one here in Atlanta is open right now. Have you Have you been to the one in Dallas at all? I I have not been to it, but I lived somewhat close to it. I used to drive by it. I think it's on like I. I-20. Okay. Right outside, maybe like four or five miles outside of downtown Dallas going, like if you're going to Fort Worth or Arlington, mm-hmm. it's like off of the highway to the left if you're heading to Fort Worth or Arlington. Gotcha. We have one here in Atlanta. I've never been, I've never been to a med- medieval times. So I've lived, you know. Yeah, I haven't either. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but because, you know, watching this movie, it makes me instantly want to go just to experience oh, that chaos. Sure. All right. right. So, so I'd mentioned that Jim Carrey was the first $20 million actor, the first actor to be paid $20 million for a role. Do you know who the first female to be paid $20 million for a film is? Ooh, 
Damn, that's a hard one. If I want, I can give you, I can give you multiple choice if you if you want. Uh, yeah, give me multiple choice. All right. But, but hey, wait, wait. Before you do, we'll see how good I am. I'm going to say that the first was probably Charlize Theron. I will say it's an Oscar-winning actress. Charlize Theron is one that is an Oscar-winning actress. But the first, all right, I'll give you three options. One, <laughs> Julia Roberts. Two, ah. uh, Halle Berry. Or three, Jennifer Lawrence. Oh, it's got to be Julia Roberts. Julia Roberts is correct. Yep. So she was the first $20 million female actor. Do you know, did what movie, do, do you know what movie? I do. That, that was, that's, that's actually question number three. Oh, that's the next question. Okay. I gotcha. So okay. for what film do you think she was given that? My instincts say Aaron Brockovich. That is correct. You are correct, sir. We've already kind of covered question number four, so this should be an easy, easy one for you to get. Uh, what are the five films that Jim Carrey did immediately prior to, or to this film that led to this historic payday? Gotcha. Okay, so it would have been Ace Ventura 1 and 2, I guess, mm-hmm. and then Dumb and Dumber, The Mask, and what else would he have done? I mean, he did that other movie. I'll give you a clue. He, he was a villain in this film. Hmm. He wore a, a lot villain. of green. Oh, yeah. The, the Wait, the mask, but that would have been, uh, what was that, Batman Forever? Batman Forever is correct. I was thinking the other movie that he had done in the earlier, like in the 80s, was like, once bitten or yeah something like so that? yeah he did once bitten Warren hutton was yeah in yeah uh loved so i saw that when i was a kid like so i knew jim carrey long before you know i once bitten was one of my favorite films as a kid it's pretty funny yeah yeah, yeah i i went through like this hardcore like vampire phase when i was a kid watched every vampire film in existence once bitten and my best friends of vampire were like on heavy rotation for me i watched those movies all the time as a kid what about that george uh that george hamilton one um love it first bite do you remember that one I know that film, but I actually have I've never seen that one. That one, never seen it. No, no. The only George Hamilton movie I've, I think I've ever actually seen was a movie that he did. Well, he wasn't even the star; he was just in it. It was called Once Upon a Crime. But no, so yeah, that, the only George Hamilton film I ever saw was that. But all right, so final question. This one, it's not really a deep cut per se, but. It's bro- it's mentioned twice, but what brand of beer does Chip offer? Heineken. Hey, all right. <laughs> <laughs> so let's see. Not bad. Uh, you know, three out of five. Not too bad. That is all I have for you today. Any any closing any closing thoughts before we do wrap up? Oh man, there's a lot. Like I think it's funny. This is the first time I saw Jack Black and watching the movie the other night. It was like young, not only young, but pretty skinny jack black and it wasn't until i don't even remember like it was like years later um that i was re-exposed to jack black and it might have been like when i was like a freshman in college in like 2001 even um when i discovered tenacious g he did this movie or rather he was in this film called airborne and it was a early mid nineties film that focused on this dude that moved from like California to Ohio. And he was like a, a surfer and he goes to Ohio. And of course there are no, there are, there's no ocean there. And he thinks he's all cool. Seth green is in it. And he's got like long red hair. <laughs> it becomes like, it's like a rollerblading rollerblading film. And Oh man. Rollerblading uh, movies. Yeah. Holy shit. So Jack black plays a high school student. That's kind of, kind of like one of like the one of the jerks in the movie until they kind of like befriends them if you will but uh terrible yet awesome like 90s film and jack black was in that but i think that's the only other movie that i remember watching him in prior to that but i also watched mr show but mr show i think was like 98 jack black and uh tenacious d they had 
they had like appeared on the show at some point. Gotcha. Yeah. I never watched, um, I saw some Ben, ben Stiller show stuff and then like, I never watched Mr. Show or, or the Tenacious D whenever they had their show mm-hmm. on HBO. It's funny too, like the, uh, the dialogue, well, you mentioned this a bit with uh, Owen Wilson at the, at the restaurant, which is so funny, like how passive aggressively friendly he is to the waiters, like talking about the chicken. He's like, I, I, I don't mean to put you out. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And then he's telling her, he's, she, he's like, he asked her a question and he's like, I'm, I got to hit the head. I'm interested in what you're saying. I want, I want to know about you, blah, 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 but I'm going to go do this. And then he gets beat up and I love the fucking jazz goofiness of, of the fight too. Cause he's mm-hmm. like, throws him into the, into that same hand dryer blower thing. And is like, Oh, that's going to hurt Gene right into the turnbuckle. Mm-hmm. And then he's on the ground. He's like, I've got a tip for you stay away from Robin. She's taken. And then he's like, snaps his fingers, like up, doing the kind of scat. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that, I think that's, those are the only ones that I can think of aside from, um, God, it was crazy. Like I didn't realize when I first saw the movie, I didn't know what hair plugs were and the boss that has the hair. Plugs. Oh dude. So bad. I'm also wondering at the time was Leslie Mann and, um, fucking what's his name apatow were they like dating at this time no apparently apparently this is where they met yeah okay that makes sense yeah yeah i thought it was funny too like the way that they had her dressed was weird like this weird 90s librarian kind of vibe to her that was i don't know like the fashion in this movie is is funny it's some hardcore it's hardcore 90s like mall mall core shit it's really really amusing You, by bringing up Leslie, man, it reminded me something and now I'm speaking and I'm forgetting. (laughs) So I'm going to hesitate for a second and try to regather my thoughts, but, oh, okay. Uh, now I remember at at some point you're, you're, you have to wonder like, why the hell would Matthew Broderick's character kind of put up with this? I mean, he has no reason to go ahead and try to like continue talking to, uh, to chip, but it's kind of set up with a with a simple piece of dialogue where where uh, Rick and Steven were talking about that he was like the like the mad smotherer or whatever that he proposed to her and she dumped him because of the fact that he was kind of clingy. Yeah, it kind of works in that sense of like if you want to you know for the people that are trying to be like, dude, there's no way. Why the hell would he continue to be friends with him? It seemed like there he, he was trying to be a little. You know, he 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 really could empathize with try almost trying too hard, and he's like, "All right, fine. You know, I'm going to go ahead and give this guy uh, a, chance, a, yeah. a, a chance, and you know, be friends with him, despite not you know not wanting to, and you know, and really having this relationship where he does hold him with kind of like this level of frustration. Following you know, conversation that he had with Jack Black regarding you know that he he smothered his ex, and then she kicked him out, and you know, didn't get married to him. So it, it, it kind of works that way. It, it, it shows where they were able to kind of make sense. And I don't know if that was a bit of dialogue that they add. It's like, dude, we have to make, we have to make sense of this relationship. How is this going to work? But that little bit of, um, of like expositional dialogue really helps the story make sense. And, and, and granted, I don't think you're really supposed to really analyze the story that much, but that's just, that's who I am. I like to try to figure <laughs> out like, do, you know, does the story hold up or does it completely yeah. collapse in the first 10 minutes? Right. And, and I think without that, it might have been, it might have been a little bit tougher. A, a couple of production things that I did notice that I thought were, one thing was kind of, I liked and the other was just funny that I noticed it. But the funny thing was, and Rick works for a TV station. And every time that they show a scene of Rick at work, like the TV station is all like, bustle like there's people walking around there's cubicles like there's all this action it's funny of this kind of like cliche element to like how a quote-unquote newsroom or tv station kind of operates right so that that was you know sort of amusing and uh you know it's whatever that's like me looking at you know something that's going to fly under the radar for for most people but I, i just thought that was somewhat funny another thing um in terms of the camera work something they did that i 
really liked in the movie was the sort of really fast like whip pans often they would do like when the mm, yeah the camera the i think it would often be when like a a subject is like throwing the look so to speak they would like do a quick whip of the pan of the camera in that direction they did it three or four or five times in the movie that i thought was kind of a cool little little move and something interesting it kind of stood out for me just among the like the stylistic elements of the movie which you know as a kind of paint by numbers comedy to -hmm. some degree in light like in as far as in terms of production right um were kind of cool yeah i think that pretty much covers the majority of the stuff that i kind of took notes on i did think it was funny like one of the the gift that Stephen gives <laughs> Chip is the tape to rem- lose his lisp in 30 days. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that is the fucking shittiest gift. <laughs> <laughs> Are you fucking kidding me? This guy got you a whole, this was like yeah. after he had gotten him that fucking sick set up with the karaoke stuff. And I mean, like, granted that was all stolen. True. Well, I mean, he didn't, he didn't know that at the time. And like, right, that was until right. after the fact that you realize, yeah, that, he gets you an entire like home entertainment like yeah. setup, and you get him a book like how to get rid of your lisp. Even even just the like free cable element, seeing like there's an incongruence there as far as the mm-hmm. gifts go. And he's like, oh, let me give you this tape to lose your lisp. Mm. Like that was so shitty. Also, like what the fuck? Like if you asked your fiance to marry you and she told you to like move out <laughs> to move out <laughs> like what is that something that can be fixed as well like it was so weird their relationship after or like the whole way that that was handled seems odd like it make kind of makes sense in this weird 90s kind of i don't know like the 90s feel like the 50s in a sense looking back on them to a degree like it's just this kind of very calm era there's not a lot of um there's not a lot of turbulence, at least not like not like it feels like, like there is now or even right. since. Like, it seems like society has sped up infinitely since the time yeah, this movie uh, was made. Definitely a simpler time, right? Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, there, there's a sense of like naivety that, you know, exists there. Um, but you, another just another thing about that relationship, it, it's interesting because this isn't a, a rom-com in the sense where the guy meets the girl, the guy tries to get the girl, he loses the girl, tries to get her back. In this case, it starts off with with his ass already being dumped and yeah. doesn't really have to get her or he, he gets her by inviting her over to watch sleepless in Seattle, which is a rom-com, which is probably, would that be, what's the first rom-com I'm even wondering, I'm thinking about when did those really kick in? Like it had probably been sort of a genre for a while. Oh yeah. Then it became a big, a bigger phenomenon. Um, It became its own genre. And I think there were films that kind of when Harry met Sally, maybe. Yeah. Even that I think is more, Rob Reiner did that, right? That's, I guess that's some somewhere yes. in there. Yeah, uh, I mean, what would you call Annie Hall? Yeah, I I still think that's more of like that has even the Rob Reiner, even like Harry Met Sally, is more in the direction of of like a a film angle. Like there's an art, there's like an artistic, there's mm-hmm. like an auteur element to those. Right. Oppo- okay. Okay. As opposed to something like. I don't know, um, Wedding Crashers kind of, right, is sort of a rom-com type. You Got Mail? You've Got Mail. Like, those are more, yeah, those are more like rom-com-y as as a genre, as this, like, packaged thing that's not intentionally, like, making a greater statement. Although, like, I definitely, like, broadly speaking, I think that those two movies do kind of fit in that largely but i think feel like the rom-com is more like it's an economically driven genre versus Mm -hmm. something that like passionate filmmakers are (laughs) are doing you know what i mean like harry met sally and uh annie hall or like that was those were probably like things that they sort of poured their hearts into a little bit more than this kind of paint by numbers sure yeah 
you know what I mean? Because the rom-com, like the third act element of it becomes so cliche, right? Runaway Bride. Now I'm just going to start thinking <laughs> of rom-com films. Yeah. My Best Friend's Wedding. Sleepless in Seattle, which they do. That might have been the first rom-com, but I don't know. I'm kind of talking out of my ass a little bit there. I'm just, that's a hot take. No, I mean, yeah, it's a hot take. It, it, it's the first... It's the first important rom-com, right? No, I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, shit, that wasn't even the first time that Meg Matt Ryan, Ryan and, yeah. and uh, Tom Hanks worked together. I mean, shit, they had done Joe versus the Volcano before that. And that's Yeah, that might even rom-com be rom-com, shit. yeah. Yeah, like uh, Tom Hanks gets with three different Meg Ryans in that film. <laughs> uh, um but I mean, that I mean, Sleep, Sleepless in Seattle was such a huge. It might have been like one of like the most successful, like at the box office uh, rom coms. But even that might be a hot take. I don't know. I just remember its cultural impact. It, right. it, it was a big. It was a big what to do. Yeah, that's wild stuff, man. <laughs> yeah. All right. Good place to close out talking about Sleepless in Seattle. <laughs> it's on cable, man. Let's watch it. That's uh, yes. That's that's your date night with your. Significant others to watch Sleepless in the Night on cable. Damn, son. There you go. If I learned anything at all from any movie, <laughs> Sleepless in Seattle, man. That's how you get a girl. Hell yeah. <laughs> all right, buddy. Uh, I think uh, we're going to go ahead and sign off. Uh, once again, I really, really do want to thank you for for coming out, welcoming me, uh, welcoming me into the uh, the podcast uh, universe, and thank you. Hopefully, we can have you back. Uh, you're you're very busy. You are uh, putting out content left and right, and it's super awesome. I'm super happy and super proud of you. Thank you very much for uh, for coming out and uh, you know helping me uh, get this get this party started. Yeah, man. I'm. I'm glad to be on the show and helping you inaugurate this thing and happy to see where it goes and definitely we can uh, hopefully come back someday, join you for, for another movie sometime. We'll chat later. Same to you, King. Thanks again for having me. All right, bye. Cheers. <laughs>